Aren't kids great? They are. They're just, they offer the best, most adventurous life possible. Whether it's our kids or the kids that we adopt around us or the kids that are in our neighborhood or the kids that God's put in our life in another way. Kids are great. And you know, kids matter to God. And when we look at God's big story, we see two big themes. He took everything he said about instructing us about kids and about our parenting and our responsibilities to them. They fall in two big categories. Every one of them would be either about loving and treasuring our kids or about training our kids. God's big story always talks about how the environment that he's chosen for our kids is an environment where they're treasured and where they're trained. And he wants it to be an environment that inspires them to love God with all they've got and to follow him, obey him with everything they have. And our prayer today, as we take a look at Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter, verses one through nine, as we take a look at Moses' words there, it's, our prayer is that you'd be inspired today. I believe God's going to affirm some of you. You're going to go, yes, yeah, I'm on the right track. And for some of you, he's going to come from you and say, yep, you're right on target. What you're doing right now is great. And for others of us, he's, and for all of us, he's going to say, come with me. There's even more waiting for you. And let's all make an agreement about this. The the instructions that Moses is giving, as I read that passage, I want you to set aside the past. That's in the past. It can only be forgiven by Jesus, right? Or celebrated as you look back. All those regrets, all the could have, should have, and would have. And instead, I want you to hear his words for this day moving forward. Because that's what God's about. He's not doing this at us today. He's doing this. Follow me. Come with me, and you're going to start a grand adventure. So we're going to turn to Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter, and we're going to read one of the earliest places in God's story where he spells out what he wants us to do in relationship to our kids, in, re- in training them, in preparing them. And the, the context is that the kids, the children of Israel, this is the moms, the dads, the grandpas, the grandmas, the servants, the slaves, the whole works They're all right there near the Jordan River, and they're getting ready to go into the promised land. Moses isn't going to go with him, so he's starting this long parade of instructions to them. And it's kind of reciting of things that he's already told them before, but he's saying it again because some of his last words are all about reminding them of what matters most. And those are the words that we're going to read today in Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 1. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you're crossing to the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy a long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and so that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. 
Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Well, we listen to Moses' instructions and we go, yeah, but weren't those families a lot different than our culture today? You know, and it's true that they were in some of the details. You know, in Hebrew family culture, dads ruled the roost exclusively. That's where the power lay, is in the males of the household. And in fact, the eldest male in any household had the power of life and death over the members of that household. But you know, with that power came responsibilities. So it wasn't all this glory stuff that we might think of when we hear power. Instead, it was this incredible responsibility they had to provide for their families, to defend their families' rights if they needed to go to the city gates and stand up for the rest of the clan, then they were the ones who were going to do it, to pass their faith on to the next generation. The, the buck stopped with them. And to find a wife for the sons in the family and to teach their sons a trade. And the mom, the mom would be nursing every kid two to three years and then they'd feed them and clothe them. And she would, unlike what some of us think, a lot of people think that moms in the Bible didn't work except inside the home, but actually moms did. They went out in the fields and worked with their husbands carrying their kids many times with a piece of fabric attached to the front of them. And they shared responsibility for training the kids. In fact, they'd train the sons till they got old enough to go out with the dads. And then they'd, the da- they'd take off and the dads would teach them a trade while the moms were working on the daughters. Because you see, by the age of 12, those daughters needed to be prepared to be wives and mothers. That's a significant detail, right, that's different from ours. And yet, it's a detail. It doesn't really change the priority of training our kids to love and obey God with all they've got. It just looks a little different in the details for us. So today, I want us to take a look at Moses' instructions and consider how we can be great trainers of our kids in the things that matter the very most for their life now and for their life eternally. So the first observation would be this, that training begins with the end in mind. What's the goal? That's always important to determine before you start training, right? And there's two important words in the first three verses here that Moses gives us that reveal what the big goal is for all of our training. And there in verse 1, 2, and 3, I just want to pick it up in verse 2. It says, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord their God as long as they live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy a long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you, and you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey. So that. Names four goals there, but they're not all equal. The first one results in the second three. Okay, so we have fear the Lord. That's the big goal, that the kids would grow to love and know and respect and have awe for and submit their lives to and follow after with all their hearts, God. That's the big deal. And if they do that, they're going to enjoy a long life. They're going to have success. My word for it's going to go well with them. And they're going to increase greatly. But notice the order 
that it's first and foremost this fearing the Lord and because those other three follow after that. And the title of this whole series in our talks about relationships is Thrive. And right here we have a great definition of it. It starts with fearing the Lord and then moves to enjoying a long life and going well with us and increasing greatly. And, and I'm just here to say that you get what you aim for in any training. God's words about parenting across his big story always have to do with this one big goal, that kids would know him, love him, and teach their kids to do the same with everything they have. Now, the truth is that when you understand what your goal is in training your kids, it'll make a difference even in the day-to-day decisions that you make. One of the times that this was really reinforced for me, I'm sure that God spoke this to me at other times, but our son was a freshman in high school, and he was playing basketball. And you know, in all sports, really in all of life, there's politics. In anything where you're vying for something, where you're competing for something, and that's how it is. One kid's trying to get on the basketball team, another kid's trying to take his position, and the coach is being pressured by parents to put this guy on the most minutes, right? And all those kinds of things were happening in our son's freshman team. And I was praying about it. He had come home and and talked to us about it, told us about it. And I was getting ready to pray about it. And the Lord said to me, he said, Ann, what's the goal? Because the goal will change how you pray right now. And he reminded me that this is the goal, that my son would know and love and follow God with all he's got that he'd become a man of God. And so he said right there, do you want a guy who's an amazing basketball player or do you want a man of God who's also a good basketball player? And I knew which one I was going to pick. I wanted the man of God. And he said, well, then that's going to change the way you pray. And you know it did because instead of praying that he got the most minutes, that he got the position, that he won out over this kid or that these parents would... Uh, pipe down, be quiet, and let the coach coach, and that my son would you know, get all the minutes that he deserved in my eyes, that's not what I prayed. Instead, I prayed for his response in the middle of whatever happened. And yes, I prayed that each one of those people would be influenced by God. But I prayed for his response that no matter what happened, he'd respond with Christ-like character. Because God wants my son to become like him. That's his highest goal for him. It changes everything. Effective training always begins with the goal in mind. So Moses has given us some wise instruction here on how to reach that goal. And I want to sum it up in three phrases that we'll repeat tonight. Do it, share it, coach it. Do it, share it, coach it. First of all, do it. Do it means that training starts with you. You go first, not your kid, or not the kids that God's calling you to influence. And this is really clear in verse 4, where before he starts talking about us impressing our kids and talking to our kids continually about knowing God, instead he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God. You love him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. He's saying, you go first. The greatest commandment of all, that's the starting point that God wants us to live out in front of our kids. And it's the starting point for our families to thrive because our kids need to see us loving God with all we've got. 
we're the first picture that they have of what God's like and what it's like to have a relationship with him. And if there's a disconnect between that teaching, that telling that we're doing and how we're living, particularly at home in those private moments, then we've lost the battle before we started. We lose our credibility with our kids. Now, some of you say, well, I can't do it perfectly. Do disciples mess up? Yeah. Loving God with all we've got doesn't mean we're not going to mess up. But if I'm a disciple, what do I do when I mess up? I ask for forgiveness. And that's part of leading our kids that gives us credibility when we're doing it for them, when we're showing them what a relationship with God really looks like. Actions do speak louder than words. We want our relationship with God. I want my relationship with God to inspire our kids to follow in our footsteps, to follow hard after God, to give them everything they have. Now, the good news for everyone in this room and for us is that this has nothing to do with how much money you make, has nothing to do with the kind of house that you provide, has nothing to do with the amount of toys you're able to provide or technology that you have the resources to provide. And God asks us this question today regarding doing it. What do your kids or the kids in your world think or know about a relationship with God by watching your life? Because that's where it starts. That brings us to the second part. We not only do it, but we get to share it. And this is all about how training is continual. And verses 6 and 7 there say this so well. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. That pretty much covers it, doesn't it? From morning to night, from the time the alarm hits to the time your head hits the pillow. You know, I love the word impress here. It's translated in the King James to teach diligently. And they had to put a modifier with teach because of what this word was all about. And it's really linked in here with this training being continual idea. Because the word means to pierce something like a needle piercing an ear. Like a sword that pierces into the belly of a person going completely through. This is about repeated, relentless, up close, and personal input into our lives about God. It's not some distant experience. Now, I had a friend that we were raising our kids at the same time. Her two oldest and my two were the same age. We were living in Bend, Oregon, and she had an entirely different strategy about teaching or training her kids about God. You see, she was on her way to God and wasn't sure what she thought of him. Well, she did. She kind of had a stiff arm going for him. And what she told me when I'd invite her kids to church or any talk about God, she'd say, No, my kids can't go to church. We're not doing any of that. When they turn 18, they can make their own decision. But if I were to do that now, it would be brainwashing them. I want to ask you a question. Was training happening? Absolutely. She was training them. But the sad part is she was training them with an unintended outcome. Because instead of the safest people in our kids' lives, the mom and the dad, the grandparents, the people that knew and loved them the most, instead of them teaching and training them about God and the way they should go, 
They left it up to any person that intercepted or intervened in their kids' lives. Any friend at school, any coach they encountered. And they put the most important thing in their kids' lives in strangers' hands. And that's the opposite of what God's talking about here. He wants the safest, most loving people in our kids' lives to be the ones who are inputting into them about who God is. And so the question that we ask ourselves here is, what do your kids hear you talk about most frequently? When they get up, as they go through the day, around the table, at bedtime, and the places that you go. And that brings us to the next step. So it's do it, it's share it, and it's coach it. Coach it. Training includes practice. Now we get this really interesting capstone to this passage where it talks about in verses 8 and 9, tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. What's the them? Well, Hebrew culture Their tradition was that the men would have what they called phylacteries. And these phylacteries were little boxes made of metal, sometimes of wood, and they had compartments. And in those compartments were pieces of parchment. And on those parchment pieces were scriptures written, specific ones out of God's Old Testament law, the first five books of the Bible. And one of their favorite ones was the very one that we're reading right here. This Deuteronomy 4, verses 6 through 9 particularly. And it was meant to be there to continually remind him. So with a leather strap, they'd tie the little box on. And if you're just an everyday person, it would sit about here on your arm and it would usually be on your right arm unless you were a Sadducee, then it had to be on your left arm because you're a little more special, right? And then for the box on their forehead, tied with leather straps, and it would sit here right on their forehead, right between the eyes. And the Pharisees like to make theirs bigger than all the others. But can you imagine going around? The Pharisees wore theirs all the time. But you and I, or the men in the room, would have just worn them to prayer. But what's the big idea with those ideas? And the second idea there, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. There were these little... um, Objects that would be posted, even today, the medusas are placed on the right-hand side of the door frame of a Jewish home. And inside that would be a piece of parchment with part of God's word from his law put inside of it. And many of them, if they had a gate or they had an entryway, would also place one there. And that's what he's talking about here. But there's one big idea being communicated. Have you ever heard the term front and center? I want everybody front and center. That's what's happening here. He's saying, I want relationship with God to be front and center in your life and in your kid's life. It's our responsibility as parents to keep God front and center, to make him unavoidable, unignorable. That's probably not even a word. I just made it up, okay? But front and center in our kid's lives. So what's really being said here is that training our kids is not about an hour at Evergreen each week, grace at our meals, and a bedtime prayer. It's not enough. It's not enough. 
That's not keeping God front and center. Proverbs 22.6 reinforces this when it says this, a very familiar proverb to some of you. Start children off in the way they should go, and even when they're old, they'll not turn from it. And I like the way the New American Standard says this because it says train up a child in the way they should go. And the word there is a great translation of the Hebrew word because it really means to narrow restrain a child, to initiate discipline in a dedicated way, to narrow their options and create boundaries for their lives, God's boundaries for their lives, and to reinforce them in a committed way. It's really a word that talks about practice, practicing our relationship with God, practicing our commitment to God, living it out day after day. And we're told that it's our responsibility to reinforce that every child know what it means to love and follow God with all they've got. So I want you to think of it like football, soccer, golf, swimming. I had to include that since I was a swimmer. Only think of it, it's every day. And we have this phrase when we're practicing. Practice makes perfect. Yeah, well, we know that it doesn't always make us perfect, but it makes us a whole lot better, right? And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about helping our kids know and love God. Now, I want you to think with me about some athletes. Did you know that Michael Phelps, the amazing Olympic swimmer, um, the greatest swimmer of all times, actually, that in his peak training months of the year, he swims 50 miles a week. He spends five to six hours a day doing that, and he consumes 12,000 calories a day. That's my six-day allotment, by the way, okay? Why do I share the calories? Because that's the energy that he's exerting, Every day to be an Olympic swimmer, to practice at it, to get better and better through repetition. Jerry Rice, he was unheard of out of high school. He went to a podunk college, Mississippi Valley State. He became, he was drafted in the NFL to be a receiver for the San Francisco 49ers. He went on to set set at least 33 records as a receiver. He still holds most of them today. Win three Super Bowls. But you know how he started? He was a kid who grew up in Starkville, Mississippi in the sweltering heat that they have there. And his dad was in construction. And his job was to catch bricks that his dad threw at him that weren't needed right on for that job. And if he dropped one, his pay was docked. Now, that's what he started at a very young age. And then when he was drafted, he began this practice. And every day he would run up his hill in the off season, a two and a half mile hill. You need to think San Francisco hills, not Hillsboro rolling hills, right? We're talking about steep hills, two and a half miles up. And he would run that hill every day in 15 minutes or less. When he brought some of his teammates with him, because they were begging to try it, some of them couldn't even finish it running. But he was known for this amazing practice and work ethic. We're helping kids with something far more important than what Jerry Rice did. We're helping our kids know and love God with all they've got. This last week, I interrupted some kids who were learning that. I was here in the auditorium setting some stuff up for Father's Day, and I needed a little help. It wasn't going to take very long, so I went out into the lobby. Asher and Raina were out there, two of our kids who are in early grade school. Their mom, Angela, is one of our E-Kids leaders, just an amazing woman. And she was out there with them. They homeschool, and the kids looked like they were doing schoolwork. 
So I went out. I didn't ask them first because I figured if somebody comes to ask you if you want to do something other than schoolwork, what's your answer going to be? That's right. Yes, I volunteer. So I asked her first and she said, sure, I think they'd welcome a little bit of a break here. So I asked them and they came in, they helped me, they went back out and then Angela told me what they were doing. She was teaching them how to have devotions, how to do soap. This is like a second and third grader, right? Actually, they're twins, so I think they're both second graders. It's a boy and a girl. And soap, that's S for scripture, reading some scripture. Then, oh, we think about it. We meditate on it and think about what the author intended to say when he wrote those words. And then A, application. It's like, what am I going to do about this this afternoon? What am I going to do about this tomorrow morning? How's this going to change my life, how I think, how I act, how I behave? And then the P for prayer. Okay, so they were doing that, and she said they really needed a break because they're really kind of struggling with that O part right now, the observation part, thinking about it for a while. She says it's not natural for them. And isn't it true when we're learning something, going from unconsciously incompetent to unconsciously competent. That's the process and everything in between. They're still clear over here on the soap process. And man, it's at those moments. That is a lot of hard work. That's 12,000 calories worth of work that they were doing there so that they could begin to establish a habit through practice of getting to know God's word for themselves, not just what mom and dad are saying, not just what the Sunday school teacher or the the children's ministry teacher is saying, but for themselves. Awesome example. And our kids need parents in a faith community that equips and encourages and reinforces their relationship with God. But you know, there's a couple dangers mentioned in scripture, probably more than a couple, but the two that I want to highlight, because they're the most common, at least in my experience that I'm talking about, I've done all of them. And one of those is a lack of accountability. So we start the training process. Your coach tells you to do this. I want you to swim four, 400 IMs. You know what those are? Individual medleys, butterfly back, breast, freestyle. Mm. That isn't fun. That is exhausting. What am I going to do? Then he walks away and goes out of the room. Who does it and who doesn't do it? Who cuts off about one of those and eliminates it? That's what this lack of accountability is all about. It's about having to answer for our actions, having to answer for our words. And A lack of accountability is the very opposite of what God says we need in order to thrive. And he illustrates this so well in a guy named Eli. And yes, Eli was a priest, so yeah, you're going to hear a preacher's kids gone bad story, okay? Because that's what happened. You see, Eli was a priest, and he did not follow through. He fell short with his boys. And they repeatedly rebelled against God and went their own way and did exactly the opposite of what God had clearly instructed them to do. And what did Eli, the dad, do? He ignored it. He didn't address it. He overlooked it. There were no repercussions. It says he didn't say anything to them about it. Well, God had something to say about this. There were consequences from this lack of accountability in his parenting. And here's what happened. God sent a prophet to tell him this. He said, I'm taking the priesthood away from your family. 
A very unusual thing that God did. Furthermore, every male in your family from here on out is going to die in the prime of life. And on top of that, your two sons that have been going their own way without you restraining them is the word that God used in the prophet. He said, they're going to die prematurely on the same day. Does that sound like thriving? No. Because a lack of accountability can really keep us and keep our kids from experiencing what God has for them and loving him with all they've got. But you know what? I'm not here to point a finger at Eli and say, not me. I'd never do that. I have. I have. I've done that. I've overlooked. I've not addressed something that should have been addressed with my kids. We get tired. Anybody say you've ever gotten tired and teaching and training your kids? Yeah. Or someone else? That could have happened for him. We get too busy. And we let little stuff go until it becomes a big issue. We forget the goal. A helpful tool to remind us about the dangers of a lack of accountability can be what we call the 10-10-10 tool. That's to ask the question, what will the results of this behavior or lack thereof, or these words or the lack thereof, be in 10 minutes, 10 months, 10 years. That's a huge sifter on what I need to not overlook and what I can overlook. Now, I didn't have the 10, 10, 10 tool when I started, but I had an amazing mom who taught me the 10 rule. She said, Ann, right after I had my kids, after I had my first uh, child, Jordan, she said, Ann, I want you to ask the question, what will this look like in 10 years if I let it go, if I don't address it, if I don't train more on this? And that really helped me. Now, my daughter-in-law, she is amazing at training. She's a great teacher, first of all, and literally in the public schools. But, you know, she has her own daughter. And don't you always wonder how these people are going to operate with their own kids? But I have to just praise her for a minute because she has little Christina, who's 19 months old. And she is training her right now to express her needs and her wants without whining. 19 months, you might go, wait, isn't that a lot to expect? But you know what? It is having amazing results just since she started really working with her. Use your words. What do you want? What do you need? And then she'll work with her until she's able to express it. And instead of throwing fits and instead of whining. Now, do you think 10 years from now that Christina, because of this training, when she reads Paul's words to the church about doing all things without grumbling and complaining, do you think she's got a leg up on some of us who maybe didn't have that? It's just amazing, Sifter, the 10, 10, 10. 10 minutes, 10 months, 10 years. This helps us choose our battles. And the truth is, sometimes we're sweating the wrong stuff. Do I need to sweat this fit that they're throwing right now? What will that look like in 10 years? What will that look like in how they respond to God when he asks them to do something they don't like? Because that's what I've just done. Or am I going to sweat that they don't like broccoli? 10, 10, 10. 
is pretty fast to show us what we need to focus on. The other danger is unrealistic expectations. Identified in the two New Testament instructions for parents, both of them are addressed to dads. Now, I believe that the reason for this is that it was a cultural context they were writing to. The dads had primary responsibility for training kids in matters of faith. Not that the moms didn't support them in it, but dads had the lead in that. And so it's really applicable to both people in that equation. It's also applicable to those of us who just love the kids around us. But he says in Ephesians 6 verse 4, fathers do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And then in Colossians 3 21, fathers do not embitter. The word there's really provoke not your children or they'll become discouraged. While the word exasperated It means to irritate, to annoy greatly, to infuriate, to rile somebody up. And the word embitter that's translated provoke not in the King James, that's the word provoke as well. But it's interesting because it kind of carries another flavor. It's what we would use the word don't escalate things. Don't make something more intense and more serious than it really is. That's what unrealistic expectations do in our kids' lives. I like to say it this way. Moses was saying, one of our sayings, don't make a mountain out of a molehill. Don't take something that wasn't important and make it important. So where do unrealistic expectations come from? I just want to mention these three. First of all, ignorance. I'm not talking about that stupid ignorance. Not talking about stupidity at all. Talking about us being unaware of what kids know and can understand because of their development stage. And sometimes people haven't had just basic child development to understand that a kid three years old is, can only think in concrete terms, that they don't have abstract thinking going. And so they don't understand our directions. That a three-year-old isn't going to sit there for 30 minutes with their hands folded looking at you ever so politely, saying nothing. That's an unrealistic expectation, and you're going to, if you punish them for that, that is exasperating them. That is escalating the situation unnecessarily. Then immaturity can be another reason. And immaturity is when we make our parenting about us. So my child does something in front of others that I don't like. Am I worried about what I look like? Or am I worried about what that means, about where their heart's at? That's what I'm talking about with immaturity. And that brings us to the third reason. And this is just plain old brokenness. The sin problem that infected the world with Adam and Eve. And we've all carried it on since. This affects all of us. It can play out in poor impulse control and narcissism and all kinds of things. It's two alcoholic parents that leave their high school son to fend for himself. Spending their Oregon Trail cards on their own needs and ignoring him, expecting him to find food for himself. That's the kind of brokenness. But the good news, when we become aware of what's guiding our parenting, of what's motivating our parenting, whether it's our brokenness or any of these things or our unrealistic expectations, you don't have to stay stuck there. There's a lot of help around you. There are parents all around you in the e-community that you can look up to. And admire. Sometimes we're waiting for a program, and sometimes the best 
thing is not a program, but another person. And if you don't know a parent or parents that you look up to, we can recommend some for you. And there's life groups that are led by other parents where you can talk to them about your situation, find out that you're not that alone, and get some help. And then there's always a couple parenting seminars around here each year where you can get unstuck in stuff that a lot of us that have gone before have already gotten stuck and unstuck from. And you can come discover that. And that brings us to the final set part of these instructions. Do it, share it, coach it. And it takes a village. It takes a village. Training is better with a team. This just has to do with who these words were spoken to. Remember we said it was spoken to parents and grandparents, to slaves and to servants, and to extended family, to aunts and uncles, and in-laws and outlaws, as I like to call them and call myself sometimes. Spoken to all of them. That's who Moses was addressing, the whole nation. He gave these instructions. He didn't just say, parents, you do this. He said, everyone, hear, O Israel, the whole nation. It was their collective job to take responsibility for the kids in their midst and to live out for them a relationship with God that inspired them, that made them want to follow God too. Jared shared a few weeks ago about the first words he heard a pastor say that he remembered when his pastor, as he walked out into the lobby of their church and he grabbed Jared's waist and said, you're kind of fat, aren't you? And the question for us is, what are the kids here at E, the kids in your neighborhood, the kids in your world, hearing you say and seeing you do? And how is that influencing them to love God? Now, I know tonight that the Holy Spirit's been working. He's been talking to you about different things, depending on who you are. I like to call it reading our mail because he's not talking to you about everything that we talked about tonight. He's just pinpointed something for you. He wants to affirm you tonight. He wants to confirm you tonight. And I believe that he wants to challenge all of us that there's more that we can experience as a community with our kids. So I'm going to ask you these four questions for you to think about. What is the goal of your parenting? I encourage you, if you haven't written it down and posted it someplace, then I encourage you to post it and make sure that you and your spouse can agree on it. Secondly, what part of coaching are you good at? Is it doing it, sharing it, or coaching it? And what part do you need to grow in? What's the Holy Spirit putting his finger on in your life? And thirdly, where do your kids need more practice? What's God up to in their lives? And finally, what are e-kids and the other kids in your world seeing and hearing from you? Now, once a parent, always a parent. Isn't that true? Wednesday night, the phone rang late at night. I saw that the number was our daughter. So, of course, I picked it up. Jared and I were in bed, and we have a phone my cell phone was there by the nightstand. And I picked it up and her voice was shaky. And I knew that something was going on. And she just told us how her husband, who's a sheriff's deputy in Snohomish County, went out on a call and a guy pulled a gun on him. And his partner shot him and killed him. Now, Raleigh was safe. But our daughter began to cry as she was telling us about this. 
thinking about the implications for this man who was threatening her husband's life and for the fact that he died. Now, when we were raising that cute little blonde, blue-eyed bundle of negotiation, because she was good at that, did we know, were we aware that we were preparing her for moments like this? No, not this exact moment, but we understood that her future, like all of ours, was going to include difficulty. Because Jesus himself said, if you're a human on planet earth, you will have tribulation. We knew, though, who would be with her to the end of the age. Who would stick closer than a brother, closer than a parent, closer than a husband? Jesus Christ. Do it, share it, coach it is about thriving in moments like this. And even more importantly, about experiencing the eternity that God has planned for our kids. Someone who loves them more than any of us ever could, as much as we love our kids, he loves them more. And I want to tell you tonight that that's worthy of training that exceeds what's done to produce an NFL receiver, an Olympic swimmer, an amazing golfer. And I want to invite you tonight to commit with me to taking the long view with our kids and to commit to training them to love God and follow him with all they've got. Let's pray together.